Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your guest host, Frank Azagiri, sitting in for Nate Swick. Before we get to the interview, which is really great, I wanted to talk a little bit about something so cool that happened to me recently in my role as an editor of Birding Magazine. I received back issues of birding since even decades before I was an ABA member. The earliest is from 1969. And one of the coolest things, to my surprise, as I was looking through those, was reading some of the letters to the editor from, like, the early 70s. So here's one. Birding improves with each issue. It's the one thing I watch for in the mail. That was sent to the ABA from someone named Dick Anderson in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, in volume three, number six, the November-December issue of 1971. That is exactly how I want ABA members to feel when they see birding in their mailboxes. I want people to feel so excited to see what's inside and start reading the articles and just flipping through and looking at the photos and maybe reading a few captions. And I wanted to make people feel really good when they just see birding laying around their house or squunched up alongside their field guides and their bookshelves. I'm very lucky. I get to work with an amazing designer and a lot of other really talented editorial staff to make the magazine, but there is always room to make the magazine better and more interesting, which is why I love the quote because it captured the way I want birders to feel. Birding magazine has been around for a long time. It's, that quote itself is over 50 years old. And I want birding to keep being around and keep making birders happy and feel that way. So always feel free to write to me about what you like in the magazine or what you might like to see more of. All right, so let's move on to the interview right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your ABA Rare Bird Focus for the first week in September 2023. And I'm Nate Swick, sitting in for Frank, sitting in for me. The biggest news of the week was the passage of Hurricane Idalia, which made landfall in Florida's Big Bend last Wednesday. Such storms fill birders' dreams with tube noses and pelagic turns, but this storm brought a very different sort of storm wave. American flamingos began falling out across the state of Florida, with birds discovered at dozens of sites in numbers that reached the triple digits. It didn't stop there. A pair of American flamingos in southern Ohio near Cincinnati represented a first state record there that was followed by birds found in Tennessee and South Carolina, where they represented second records as well as coastal North Carolina and Virginia, where they represented firsts. It had birders playing flamingo bingo across the southeast. Alabama and Texas also recorded small groups. The flamingo flocks were composed of both adult and juvenile birds, with some banded and their origin tracked to breeding colonies in the Yucatan Peninsula. The theory is that the birds were passing from Yucatan to Cuba, where they encountered the storm and were caught up and scattered across eight states 
and counting now. It was quite the week for vagrant gulls as California's second swallowtailed gull of the year was seen this week in San Mateo County. There is, however, a chance that this is the same individual that was seen in Santa Barbara County in July. This is the ABA area's seventh record and California's sixth. And lastly, a good candidate of what would be the ABA area's first record of gray gull was photographed in Walton County, Florida this week. Like swallowtailed gull, this is a South America breeding specialty. This one in the Atacama Desert. It is a winter resident on the west coast of South America, notably straight south of Florida. There are a handful of vagrant records of this species in Central America from Guatemala, Panama, and two from Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. Historically, northward incursions of the species can be associated with strong El Nino years. A previous account of gray gull from Louisiana in 1987 was not accepted by state committees at the time, but it is worth noting that 1987 was an El Nino year too, and the photos of the bird in question look pretty interesting for my money. Those are the recent highlights. For the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news on our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook or an ABA community. And now, back to Frank. I have with me today is our guest interviewee on the American Birding Podcast, Anuz Gimire. Anuz is a biologist who recently completed a PhD at North Dakota State University He's from Nepal and is a really fun person to follow on social media because one day he's posting great photos of northern owls in North Dakota, and then the next day he's posting amazing photos of Nepali birds. Anuz, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've been listening to the ABA podcast for a while, and it's a great honor to be here. Oh, that's really great to hear. That's always that's always exciting um, to just know that people are listening and mm-hmm. then, you know, that was even like sort of like me. I, I used to listen to the podcast even though I was doing stuff with the ABA. And then Nate was like, oh, you should come on the podcast. And I was like, oh, yeah. So exciting. Okay. So that's really awesome. All right. Let's dive into the questions. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Do you have a spark bird? How did you get into birding? Okay. Uh, so interestingly, uh, let me start with introducing myself. So as you mentioned, my name is Anus Gimire and I'm an ecologist. I'm originally from Nepal and I've been living in the U.S. for the last six years. Um, so my spark bird is kind of an interesting uh, story. I do have a spark bird and it's a barn owl. And when I was really ah. young, there was a barn owl that nested in our house. I must have been like, I tried I called my mom to figure out the exact year, but I could not figure it. She could not figure it out, but it should be like 2000, early 2000s. And then it used to come there and it was so habituated with us. Like he didn't mind being around us. Wow. And then I used to like hang out with him basically. Like he used to come and sit next to us and then just like do his head thing and thing. But then I was not lot into birding by that time. I was very young, like seven or eight. So I was not really into birding. But I used to love birds. I, when I used to see this flock of egrets flying past like our houses to go to their roosting sites, I used to love watching them. But when I was really young, I was really into snakes. So I grew ah. up watching Austin Stevens, Jeff Crowen, and then Steve Irwin and things. And I was like, I'm going to be a herpetologist someday. And then that's how I kind of went on. But every time I was looking for like different things around when I was hiking and things, I used to look for birds. But then... Uh, I specifically remember this day because it was February 2nd on 2006 because that's World Wetland Day. There was this local organization that kind of did this birding or like wetland birding thing on that day. And I went birding with them. And I was like, this is fun, like trying to look for birds and stuff. 
And then it kind of like connected back to the barn owl. And I was like, I used to love like looking at that owl. So maybe this is something that I should do. And that's how I kind of got into birding. Wow. Wow. That's a great story. So the barn owl, did they, they make those terrifying yep. screeches. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So yep. you still liked it, even though it was. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know if I got scared the first few times I heard it because I don't remember it, but we got used to it. Like I remember that calls and like, it just, it, it, we habituated with it as it did with us. Like it was just normal call for us, but the scream does sound very scary for a person who hasn't heard it. Yeah. I want to look later, later when I get a chance, I want to see, I'm sure that must be a different subspecies of of barn owl well very cool that's really that's have you seen one in in the u.s no i haven't yeah not yet i am planning to i think there's like this spot somewhere in iowa where they get a lot so i'm thinking about like maybe going there because i'm trying to collect all the owls in the u.s because <laughs> i love owls so oh or, okay yeah. yeah so how are you doing with that with the the u the owls in, in the in the u.s I am doing pretty good though. I need barn owl and I need one of those family dead and northern pygmies. I need to go to Arizona for that. But apart from yeah. that, anything I can get in Fargo or like North Dakota area, I have them all. You have all of those tough that, northern owls. Yep, yep. Wow. Including the boreal owls. <laughs> wow. Yeah. My last one of the northern ones was actually um northern hawk owl. Yeah. That's an awesome owl. I love it. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, okay, you're doing great. <laughs> All right. You sort of started answering what I was going to ask you next. So what kinds of birding have you been able to do in the ABA area? Okay, so you've been in the U.S. for six years. Mm-hmm. Um, you, so you've birded North Dakota like somewhat thoroughly. Yep. I, I know you went to McGee in, in the spring, or I think I remember that from your socials. So what kind of stuff have you been able to do? Yeah, so like uh, at least for North Dakota, and since I live in Fargo, we uh, Minnesota is just our border state. It's just like five minutes away, and it's easy to get there, and it has a lot of lakes and stuff. So. I've birded more of Minnesota than I've birded in the North Dakota area. But okay. like, I think All it's right. like similar between like how much I've birded here. And I am up to 262 species for North Dakota right now, which is pretty good. Wow. Compared yeah. to like there's like 306 or something or in the 300s. And then one of the places that I've birded a lot, like I go there three or four times every year is the Saxim bog. And like kind yeah, of like north of Duluth, just to look for great grays. It took me three years to find one. Wow. After that, I've just been going there three or four times every year. And in the fall, I always go to the hawkeries in Duluth to look for like raptor migration and stuff. So mm-hmm. those are the two places that I birded a lot. And yeah, I went to the Maggie Mars and I wanted to go there forever because I had read this book about birding and it kind of mentioned that place even when I was in Nepal. And I was like, I want to go there when I go to the u.s but it kind of like aligns with my field work i work with sparrows and it starts around the same time so i never could go to the mars but this time i was done so i was like i need two or four days off and i talked to my advisor and she was like yeah you can go look for birds so i got to go there and it was awesome like it was one of the best birding experience there was a lot of people there but yeah yes it comes with that but i think i loved it oh, and that's great. Uh, yeah and then i've done some birding florida as well which was amazing okay yeah Okay, so let's see. So, Saxim, do you always go in the winter or have you been able to go in other seasons? I usually always do it like in the winter, but the last year I tried to go look for a great gray in summer. 
there was only mosquitoes there. There's so <laughs> much mosquitoes. So I didn't try it this year because one, it's really hard to find them. The other, it's just like mosquitoes. <laughs> but it's a really good place to bird too. Like I think I ended up getting a lot of species like other birds, but I haven't done it in summer for the owls except for that one year. Okay. Well, you've been to a lot of the great, great birding destinations in the U.S., so that's pretty great. Um, let's see. Okay, so how about, so tell us about birding in Nepal. What are some of your favorite birds and places to bird, and what's the birding culture like in Nepal? So, um, it's like, it's kind of different than here. Like, I think the birding community is really huge here with, like, eBird and everything. But before I got to the U.S., I never used eBird. I had one of those, like, small the notebook thing where I used to write all the species I see and mm-hmm. things. And when I got yeah. to the U.S., my pre- previous lab mate, Aubrey, she kind of introduced me to eBird and everything changed. And there aren't a lot of eBirds back home or eBirders back home. So, like, mm-hmm. one thing that I found, like, really difficult is I really wanted to see this series in Eagle Owl. I've never had one as a lifer in the wild. So I mm-hmm. was, like, trying to find out, and there's not a lot of eBirds, so you don't get to, like, know where they are and stuff. There's like yeah. small community over there compared to here. Because like here, if you want to see some birds, you can like figure that out. And in general, like I think there's just more opportunities in terms of like where you can bird and stuff here compared to back home. So I think that I found that different when I went home after like five years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I remember I have been birding long enough that I sort of remember when knowledge of like where really good birds were was more of like a person to person um tight network of information i think it's probably true that we're at a point now where birders sort of like take the accessibility of that information a little yep. bit more for granted yep. um here in, in the US and, and in some other places what ways okay so what ways if any would you say birding in the ABA area is similar to birding in Nepal? And are there any ways in which it's really, you already kind of answered it, any mm-hmm. ways in which it's really different? I, again, like I think there's more, so if you go to different cities and stuff, there's like, I, I think we're sought in parks that you can bird in cities in terms of Nepal. So like in the, in Fargo area, there's so many parks around where I can just go and bird. It doesn't even have to be something fancy like Maggie Mars or like Bog or something. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. a park near me called the Trifoil, which is really good for birds. But back home, we don't have that in Kathmandu. There's this wow. one uh, community forest called the Ranibari, which is really good for birds, but it's just like one small fragment in a big city. So. Gotcha. Either you have to get outside the city or like go to a national park or something, but there are some really good. So like uh, I'm from Kathmandu and there's a yeah. national park called Simapuri National Park and which gets a lot of birds. So like I think in total, Kathmandu has about 490, 500 species and you can get 350 plus in that one park. So, but in the city area, it's kind of like hard to get those like mix of forest patch where you can bird but in the u.s you go to a different place you find a small forest patch that's been protected in some sort and you can bird there so i think like it's more accessible Mm. to bird here compared Mm. to back home and if i want to find a specific bird there's this really awesome place in eastern part of nepal called kositapu which is really good for migratory birds like they get over 250 uh, migratory birds from Siberia during the winter Mm -hmm. season. And then it's really good, but it's like, it takes almost 24 hours to go there. And then, you know, like, yeah, 
it's just not well developed in terms of just birding, birding. But there is like a good, there's a small community, but there's a really good birding community. And I think mm-hmm. it'll grow with time as well. But it's just like it's difficult to access those places, I think. Yeah, that's a very interesting answer. And I'm glad you talked about that because I just think like, okay, so if if so if we have listeners who go and visit Nepal, Nepal is like pretty well known. It's like, you know, there's 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 really good birds to see in Nepal mm-hmm. and there's good places to go birding. Mm-hmm. But it's just going to be a completely different experience to go on like a birding trip as a visitor than it is going to be to like live in a really big city like Kathmandu. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's very interesting. In, in, yeah. That's like a, that's interesting to know about. I mean, I do sort of, I live in Pittsburgh and I do take it for granted that there's just really nice city parks, just mm-hmm. a few minutes away from me. My, the, my patch, my like main patch, I can walk to in about 10 minutes and I can drive in, you know, just a few minutes. It's really nice in migration, especially. Um, so it's good to, it's good to be reminded of that stuff. Okay. Yeah. Uh, right, also cool. like, so I think uh, since you mentioned this, I want to kind of add on that, like people know Nepal for like, Everest or the, all the mountains and Himalayas but mm-hmm. the more I read about like birding or like books about birding and stuff I kind of felt like Nepal is as the not known as much as it should be in terms of birding okay. I've seen like so many so randomly I was just checking for like top birders or whatever on eBird and I was kind of looking through their checklist and seeing if they've been to Nepal and stuff and most people kind of seem to be like not going there one of the mm. reasons also could be like we're this tiny country in between mm-hmm. China and India, and then like probably like if you go to India, you're going to get more birds and stuff compared to Nepal. Mm-hmm. So like maybe that's why it's like logistically cost effective and all of those. But like I think Nepal has a lot of potential in terms of birding, and I just feel like it's not up there when it comes to being like oh it's one of the really good places to bird or something like that. For me, Nepal is probably. It's like one of the countries I would most like <laughs> to visit to go birding. Um, it, it has all those amazing pheasants. I mean, I guess like you can see them in other places. Most pro- possibly, yeah. probably yeah. all of them. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, India is its neighbor and it's very large, mm-hmm. also a very large neighbor. Okay. You know, you could go to other places. You could go to India and like, you know, bird in similar habitat. And I guess other parts of the country without having to, to cross a border. So, okay. But I mean, I don't know. I just, I, I would just love to bird Nepal. You know, I, I like the food. That's a factor. <laughs> That's just normal. me. Uh, yeah. Like normal. <laughs> so one of the things I like, so one of the things that like my lab mate Aubrey and I invented is like, instead of lifer pie, we do a lifer momo. So every time we find a no lifer, we do a lifer. Yeah. That's something we invented. Oh, wow. <laughs> So, so how do you do that? Do you bring momos with you into the field? No. So most, so yeah, that's the thing with Nepal too. Like, so if I wanted to go, so she wanted to see the Himalayan monal, which is called Dafe in Nepali. And it's, yeah, our that, by the way, it's like my, that's like insane. my most, that's my most wanted bird in the world <laughs> it, that yes. I would like to see. It looks insane. And the bird of Nepal book has that on the cover. And then she uh-huh. saw that and she's like, I need to find this bird. So we went up to this mountain and we we're like hiking up at 14,000, 15,000 feet. And we had to go like 
we were in the range, but it's really hard to find them. And we didn't yeah. end up getting it, which was sad. But uh, she's going to go there again in like a year or two to find the Monal. So, okay. So, like, when we, if even if she had gotten the Monal, if we would be up at like 15,000 feet, so there would be no Momo there. So, we'd have to come back down to the city and get it. Yeah. <laughs> and then you can have a tea if you want or a child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I, I want to do that. <laughs> like, Momo. like Yeah. Are there, so have you, have you have you had the Monal? I have. I have multiple yeah. times. Yeah. Have you had um, like have you done well with the pheasants? Because they're mostly a lot of them are high elevation yep. or yep yeah. I just those pheasants are, they're so great. I mean we there, there are some birds like that too in in the ABA area that it's like mm-hmm. I don't know I just love looking for those there because they're so they're usually they're usually so like so many of them are so like secretive yeah. um. And they're hard to find and they can mm-hmm. really give you the slip. But then when you get them, usually a lot of times you get like a really good look at them. So it's just like, I don't know. It's just so great. It's just a great I, I, And a I lot of times they're mean. so beautiful. Yeah. And I, I feel like the the Nepali ones are like really, really beautiful. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, a lot of them. So, yeah. Yeah. So one of the thing, like you talked about how beautiful they are and stuff. And I think like when Aubrey went to Nepal with me, she was like, oh, the birds here are so colorful. Like our Woodpeckers are like really fancy color. The pheasants are mm. really good. So it's like more colorful stuff there. So it's mm-hmm. fun to burn. Yeah. But yeah, you do need to walk up high in the mountains to get those yeah. birds. Um, yeah. I like that too, that high elevation birding. I, I was like reading a little bit about Nepali birding before before the interview. And uh, it just, it seems like it's one of those, this is true sometimes in the ABA area but it's it's more true in other places I've visited it just seems like one of those places where it's like your the elevation you're at is like mm-hmm. key for knowing what birds are going to be around and yep. that can d- change pretty dramatically yeah, yeah yeah so for my master's degree I looked at uh, species richness and diversity of birds in one of the mountainous regions of Nepal so it's called the Annapurna region and I went from 1400 meters up to 5000 I wanted to go to 5,600, but mm. I didn't find anything higher than that, at least at that point. So I went down to like 5,400. And then there's so many good birds above 5,000 meters. I had like wow. the snowcocks, the chukars, the gandalas, yeah. and like all of those beautiful birds up there. And yeah. that was also my first time actually looking at birds. I had been to higher elevation before, but when I was there, I was like seeing this ascenters, this ravens, all of these birds. And I was like, this is awesome. Like I'm at 5,000 meters. And they're still like doing things there. <laughs> yeah. Well, very cool. All right. Talking a little bit more about you, you started talking about your research. So mm-hmm. one of your professional research interests is life history trade-offs. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about what that means and why it interests you as a research topic? Mm-hmm. So I will kind of like connect this to what I started with or like how I got interested in the whole research that I am or like I did recently for my PhD and stuff. So back home, again, like I said, I was interested in anything that moves in nature. I was hiking up this mountain and one time I saw this uh, orb weaving spider in like low altitude. And then as I kept on going higher and higher, I started seeing that like the wave was getting bigger and bigger as I went up higher in elevation. And I kind of got interested over that. And I was like, is there a trend here or something? And I still don't know if there is a trend to that, but that kind of led me to something interesting. So when I came back home, I started looking at like body size variation and stuff. And I 
learned about this rule called the Bergman's rule, which basically says that like the species at higher altitude or like in colder regions are bigger compared to the species in warmer right. region. And I it, that kind of got me into thinking like how or what dictates animal to be big or like why is a sparrow the size of a sparrow and not like I don't know ostrich or something like what what is limiting them so I kind of started thinking more about that and then it led me to like looking into this trade-off so basically trade-off refers to like organisms have this limited amount of energy that they need to invest to various traits like competing life history traits and if you invest more in one you have less left to invest in the other ones so one of the classic example or like the, one of the trade-offs that I'm interested in is like growth versus lifespan. So if you grow faster, you're going to die younger or like die earlier. So there's like this negative trade-off between them. And I kind of took that lifespan thing as a limiting factor for the body size. So I was interested in like what is limiting them. Maybe it's lifespan that's limiting them to be the size mm-hmm. they want to be. And then that's how I kind of like went on into looking into my research and things. Wow. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit more about your PhD research, which which focused on house sparrows? It did. One of my favorite birds. (laughs) That's great. Yeah, tell us. Yeah, they're pretty cool birds. Like (laughs) before starting my PhD on house sparrows, like I used to see them everywhere in Nepal, but I never appreciated them. And most people still don't. But working with them for six years at like, you know, given me a different perspective on them. They're like really beautiful birds. But going back to my research, um, so as I mentioned before, we expect there to be a negative trade-off between growth and lifespan. And uh, for the lifespan, I use telomeres as proxy because most studies have shown that like we can use telomeres as a proxy for lifespan. So I was looking at that, but then when I was looking for more research and stuff, some people have found, uh, most people find like negative relationship between them, but some people have found positive relationship and some have found no relationship between those uh, traits. So I was like, what, what's happening here? And maybe it's just like under normal circumstances where uh, I always give example of a bio or a pizza. So like if the organism starts with a limited amount of resources, then it does not have enough to spend on all, all of the trades. But what if it started out with a larger pie, then it can spend energy in all of the things. But then I kind of thought like, maybe what if we stress them more? Maybe we, mm. what if there's like another environmental stress or some kind of stress on them? Maybe then we will be able to exacerbate that uh, negative relationship between them. So I kind of looked at like how different environmental stresses or environmental factors affects the relationship between growth and telomeres on house parents. So okay, so so you finished your PhD. Mm-hmm. What are you planning next? What are some of your professional ambitions, and what are your dreams? My biggest dream is to go back home and uh, start a banding station and a research wow. station there. So that's what I've been planning. And again, like if I will go back to the thing, like Nepal hasn't been on birding radar and it also hasn't been on like research radar because I've seen people do a lot of stuff in like South America, Africa and other places. But Nepal somehow hasn't been on the radar for bird research. Like we haven't wow. had a lot of research on there like there's a lot of nepali people who are doing brilliant work there are a lot of like work there but i haven't seen the international community get into there and bird a lot or like do bird research and stuff there so i'm kind of trying to like collaborate with people and seeing like if anyone is interested to work there so that's one of the things that i want to do and then if not like i will just like figure out a way to like 
propel the research uh, possibility in Nepal. So that's one of my biggest dreams. And also like uh-huh. one, our topography, like one of the cool things that I tell new people is the common hoopy or hoopoo. People call it, I think, hoopy or hoopoo, both the bird. I found that bird from 72 meters uh, in elevation to almost 5,000 meters. So we have that like huge elevation difference within the span of 150 miles or something where there are same species of bird that are, like are habituating those areas so there's a lot of possibility to explore like different kind of adaptation high altitude adaptation and stuff back home so i'm kind of like thinking about doing something in that regards are there any established banding stations in nepal there is one so there's a okay. person there's like this one of the professors or like uh Professor, agriculture professor, he's worked a lot on birds of Nepal, and I know from him that they did this banding station in the Kosi Tapu that I talked about before. And apart from that, like apart from their group, I don't think there has been a lot of banding and other stuff done in Nepal. A lot of migration comes through mm-hmm. Nepal, I would think. Yep, yep. We get a lot of birds from like Siberia and like uh, even Europe as well. And then two of the coolest things that you can also see in terms of the uh, migration is the Demuzil crane and the bar-headed geese that kind of fly over the Himalayas, even oh, like yeah. around Everest and stuff. So but yeah, we get all of those cool birds too. Yeah, bar-headed goose, just the bird that flies the highest or has yeah. been recorded at the highest yeah. elevation. If, yeah. Because yeah. Wow. I think there's like multiple uh, stories and books about mountaineering and stuff when they're like camping around like camp three or something in Everest and they uh-huh. hear this like bird fly past them. This is really cool. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I hope you're able to to find the support and make the connections mm-hmm. that you need to be able to do something like that. Sounds very worthwhile. Yeah, I think it would be wow. really good. Like like I said, like the landscape we have is insane. So you can go from seventy two meters uh in the southern part to like eight thousand in a span of hundred fifty miles. So that's like Mm-hmm. It's, it, it, it is in itself a laboratory where you could like investigate so many different aspects of like avian research. So I don't know. I'll, I'll end up doing something back home. So that's my overall dream. What are some of your, what are some birding goals you have either for the ABA area or for Nepal? So one of the things that I do want to, so um, I was hoping to get, so I think North Dakota currently has 322 birds and I was like, I'm going to get all, get them all. But it's been really hard as <laughs> I went past 220. I'm on 262 right now. So okay. I'll try to get as many North Dakota birds as I can. And I think I have like 364 or something for the US. And I want to get to that 600 mark before I go home. Or if not, wow, wanna, okay. yeah, if not, I want to get to at least 500 for the US. Yeah. And that's one of my goals. But I think I will get to 500 before I leave. I don't know about 600. It would be nice to get to 600. But it yeah. looks like really hard <laughs> to get there. Because the yeah. first 100, it's so easy. But after that, it's just like, yeah, looking for a needle in a haystack or something. And for Nepal, as I mentioned before, we have like, Nepal is like a rectangle that's spread apart like, thousand kilometers or something and then we have three distinct zones the southern belt that's like flatlands and then the mm-hmm. mid hill region that's just hills and then the higher himalayas which is mountain so one of the things that i want to do is like mm-hmm. walk from the eastern end of the rectangle to the west end in all three zones mm-hmm. and find all the birds that i want 
I yes. love walking. I love walking and I want to walk wow. all over Nepal. So that's one of my goals that kind of like attaches with my research goal as well. I could just like have uh, potential areas that I could do research. So it's, it's going to be like a pilot thing where I go walk across all over Nepal and find good places to bird or find all the birds. Yeah. Wow. Sounds like an amazing adventure. Yeah. Oh. And yeah, I am thinking about writing a book after that too. So like yeah, that's, you that's have something. To. Yeah. And that's you going to be to. one of the other uh, attached dreams with the main dream. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned North Dakota first. Mm-hmm. What birds are you missing for North Dakota that you would like to get? Uh, there's some and, weird weirdos. So like it's one of those like that comes between like three or four years or something like that. So long-tailed duck, harlequin duck. Or, mm-hmm. Yeah, one of those. So one of okay. the things that I've been missing and I hate it is summer tanager. It's been five years that I've been chasing a tanager. And like every huh. time I see it in eBird or like there's like this good birding community here and people share what they see and they share like a summer tanager in this place. And I run like one time I left work to go look for the bird and I didn't get it. And it's been five years. <laughs> I, for some reason, I can't find summer tanager. So okay, <laughs> summer tanager is your nemesis for it North is, Dakota. It is. It is. Wow. I, yeah, okay. I don't know what's about that bird that I can't find. Like I can find crazy like camouflaged owls, but the, the yeah. one red bird that's so easy to see, I can't find it. <laughs> yeah. So that's there. Those are. The Have you I'm seen missing. it elsewhere? No, no, I haven't. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So it would be a lifer, and I. A state and also the county bird for me. Yeah. Where Where else do you want to go birding in in the ABA area? I am planning to go to so uh, at the start of this year. So the previous year, I aimed for five hundred species in total for my year thing. It was like a grad student big year of five hundred mm-hmm. birds. I ended up getting grad student big year because <laughs> like that's that. all you can dream of as a grad student. And I ended up getting four hundred ninety three. At like on December 31st in Nepal at like 7 p.m. chasing all the birds I could get, but I could not reach 500. And I was like, I'm going to try for 600 this year, but I'm only up to 371 right now. So it's going to be really hard, but I'm planning yeah. to go to Rio Grande Valley or uh, Southeast Arizona wow. during the year, like maybe around uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas. So I don't know, maybe 600 is still possible. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. I love I love grad student big year. I yeah. just I just like the concept <laughs> of it. I don't even know exactly what it, you know, means, you know, obviously you're a grad student, but I just feel like I understand what that yeah. means. <laughs> less less money, less time, less yeah. anything to go look for birds. Yeah. Wow, that's great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um mentioned this also a few times already, but I know that you really like birding books. I know you read Kingbird Highway. Mm-hmm. What are some birding books you have enjoyed? Where are some you'd still, are there any you still like to read? And are there any birding books about Nepal that you'd recommend? And also I wanted to ask, did you learn anything insightful about American birding culture from these books? I did. So like right now, um, I do use eBird to find birds and stuff because I, it's it's kind of like an easy way to get around finding birds, but it's not like, I don't like the, the pinpoint location. Even like if someone says like, it's right in this latitude or whatever the coordinates, 
I like to know where the general birds are. Like I love finding it myself. Like I, mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. like prefer people pointing it to me and stuff. And it, that's what the reason I'm talking about this and connecting it is like, I really love Kingbird Highway and like how mm-hmm. like can went through all of those things. Like, yeah. Even now, I think it's hard for someone to just do what he did, like in the seventies. Like, if I were to go outside trying to hitchhike and find all the birds, I think I'm going to struggle. So it was really awesome, and like, I really love that book. But then also, like, the different things is that I learned from here is, uh, even from like Ken Kaufman's book, like at the end where is like he did not care about the, um, the number of birds he's seen. He's like just gave up on that. He's like. I learned so much about this stuff and things or like birding in general. He didn't mm-hmm. care about that. I think that's something I learned from like a lot of birders here. So also the the more important thing is as a beginner birder, you're trying to chase birds. You're going to get, or you're interested in getting that least high as you can. And then I think you miss out on most of the stuff. So even like from Ken's book and also Keith Corley's, who's a local birder here, one thing I've learned from like, their stuff is always investigate the birds you see like just don't be like mm. oh it mm-hmm. looks like house sparrow and just walk off so as mm. a beginner birder you're looking wow. at as a beginner birder you're looking at the bird as a whole but then it's it's never a good idea to do that look at individual film marks so like just look at film marks and id your bird not just look at the bird so that's something i've learned and i've been practicing that for a while now instead of just looking at one like a geese like canada geese if I see it, I'm not going to be like, oh, just flock of geese. I've been scanning it for a brand or something like that. Because uh-huh. like, yeah, so that's something I learned from the books. Always look for the odd bird out, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's fantastic. I mean, I thought it would just be like something like, oh, Americans have this like weird quirk or say this like weird thing or something. But that was like a very insightful sort of like, you really learned something about mm-hmm. how you can be a better birder. Yeah, I definitely That's did. great. I definitely did. And before that, I just used to be like, I remember this from, again, like going back to Ken, because he was like, I was just looking for birds. Like I was not interested in learning about them. And like, now I specifically, like if I see a lifer, I learn about it. I, I'm so bad at sketching, but I try to draw mm-hmm. draw them out and then look for like the field mark. Oh, like this bird has this, this bird has that. And then, that has helped me a lot in the past few years to be a better birder, I guess. Just like focusing more on knowing the birds rather than just being like, oh, I saw yellow-headed blackbird or something like that. Have you read um, Have you read Wild America by Peterson? I have. I have. Yeah, okay. So I haven't finished it. I remember you recommending me this book. And oh, I, I did? <laughs> yep, you did. <laughs> I, oh, I, must have, I must have said that to you on Twitter. Okay. Yep, yep. You recommended okay. it. And I haven't finished it, but I, I, I am reading that book right now. Okay, great. All right. Um, are there any others that, that you sort of like have on your list? I like Birding Without Borders as well. No House Yeah, yeah. That was a good book. It was, it was very fast compared to Ken's, but it was a really good book too. Okay, good. And there was this, uh, I can't remember it on top of my head, but there's bo- this book called Looking for the Rarest Bird. It's for the mm-hmm. some kind of night jar. Uh, I forgot what the bird is. Oh, was. yeah. The yeah. Nesitar oh. night jar or something like yeah, that. The yeah, the rarest. Yep. I can't remember the title either, but I, I remember, like, I know, it's like about like there was like a wing. Yeah, yeah. And that was like the only aspect of the this species that was mm-hmm. known to science. Yep. 
Yeah, and, and it's it was like, does that take place in Ethiopia? Is that I right? I think or? so. It's somewhere in Africa, probably Ethiopia. Yep. But it's called the uh, Looking for the Religious Bird, the Nature Star, Night Star, or something like that. That's a really right. good book too. Yeah, and uh, Phoebe Snetzinger's uh, Life List was pretty good. I love that book. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That was published by ABA. Wait. Oh, no. Awesome. You're talking. You're talking about the biography of her. Yes, it's the life list. I forgot who wrote that. Yeah, um, Oli- Olivia Wisman or something like that. Yes, uh, Olivia Gentle. Olivia yes, Gentle. Yes, yeah. that's right. Um, there's another book. Uh, well, so Phoebe had started to write a book, or she had mm-hmm. like notes that um, the ABA published that are like you know. So that one's different in that it's in her own words. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay, cool. Well, you've read a lot of the classics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, a few of the books that I think I should mention that kind of helped me become a decent birder is uh, Hawks by Peter Dune. And is it just called Hawks? I forgot. But it's the uh, book where it's about like Hawks, Peter Dune, Selby, and someone like it. That book was really good too. Hawks in Flight. Hawks in Flight, that one. That one yeah. helped me a lot, ID Bird. And the new book, the Flycatchers of America. I hate mm-hmm. hiding flycatchers, and the Cindy Lee book <laughs> is really good. Mm-hmm. But there's so much information there, and like, but I'm learning about them, so I I love those kind of books as well. Yeah, Hawks at Flight. So that one's uh, Dunn Sibley, Pete Dunn Sibley, and also Clay Sutton. Clay yes. Sutton wrote for the magazine uh, once. It was cool to work with him. Um, and okay, you know the flycatchers. What's the big ID challenge um, in in Nepal? Is there something equivalent? Like, oh no, it's uh... Ooh, warblers. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. They're oh, they're I I don't like it. I don't <laughs> like it. But so what what has changed now is that I'm more focusing on like minute details, like field marks and stuff. So this yeah. time when I was back home, I got a little better than I was before. So that has wow. helped me a lot because I'm just looking for those field marks, field details, all of the stuff that they do or like habitat. So there's this mm-hmm. thing like like I talked about Keith, he uses this word called habitaty, And I was like looking for more habitaty stuff for those birds. And that helps mm. a lot too. So like it's more about knowing the birds. And now that I know the birds, I was better at identifying them than I was before. So for the master's thesis that I talked about, that I looked at speciesness of birds in Nepal, I saw so many wobblers that time. I was just like, I need to ignore this because I can't ID this. <laughs> but yeah, wow. wobblers are really similar looking back home. It's really hard to ID them. Wow. Yeah. Maybe I should do a book like the Sintili book about flycatchers of America, be like wobblers of Nepal or something like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anuz, thank you so much for speaking with today with me today. And that was just that was great. I, I think people will enjoy the interview. Um, or I hope they do. Well, I wish you a lot of luck and success with, with all your goals and ambitions and and um, thanks again for being a yeah. guest. Thank you very much for inviting. It's again like it's a pleasure being here. I'm, I've been a huge fan of the ABA podcast and then yeah, it's going to be awesome to be on it. So all right. thank you for inviting me. It's nice talking to you. Thank you for coming. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. 
The purpose of the ABA is to promote birding, and a big part of promoting birding is promoting birders, and the ABA is the best at that. So if you like the stories we share on the podcast or in the magazine, join the ABA or renew your membership. Go to aba.org slash join. That's what allows us to tell these stories and highlight people who are doing really interesting things in the birding world. All of us at the ABA appreciate our members and would love to have you be part of our organization if you're not a member yet. So for me, one of the coolest things Anu's mentioned in his interview was the concept of the lifer Momo. You know, I like pie and all, but if I had to choose between lifer pie and lifer Momos, I am 100% going with lifer Momos. As I mentioned, I already really wanted to go birding in Nepal, but now the thought of getting my lifer Himalayan Monal and immediately after that eating lifer Momos is like my number one desired birding experience. Nate Swick is the ABA's digital communications manager and the host of the American Birding Podcast. Nate is up for tracking down the Himalayan Monal if any trip operators want to sponsor him. He said that he's willing to announce all his lifers on a live version of the podcast as he finds them, what he's calling a lifer promo. Executive producer of the American Burning Podcast and the executive director of the ABA is Wayne Klockner. Wayne is dedicated to advancing the ABA's mission to inspire all people to enjoy and protect birds, a goal he refers to in brief as lifer a go-go. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from David Hartley and Greg Neese. John Lowry scored Himalayan Monol blood pheasant and a lot of other great pheasants in Nepal, but then he woke up from his dream and realized they were all lifer no-nos. David Hartley is a huge uh, high elevation pheasant fan. He loves tracking down chuckers and Himalayan snowcocks whenever he has a chance, an event he calls the snow show. Greg Neese scoured the landscape of the highest elevation hill in Illinois, but the Himalayan snowcock was a no-show. Find us at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. Questions and comments can be sent to podcast at aba.org. I'm your guest host, Frank Zagiri, filling in for Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>